Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. From the Architecture Foundation, I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with Takiro Shimazaki, director of the London-based architecture practice TSA. Having immigrated from Japan with his family at the age of 13, Takiro studied at the University of Wales and the Bartlett School of Architecture. And after working for Atsuko Hasegawa, Richard Rogers, and Peter Smithson, he co-founded TSA with Yuli To in 1996. Takiro currently runs Diploma Unit 8 at the London Met, and has also taught at the Architectural Association. And between 2006 and 2018, he organized an independent school running annual workshops called TSA Forum. I met with Tech in early February of 2024 at his studio in Peacock Yard near Elephant and Castle, where we talked about, among other things, his early experiences in Japan and the influence that his cultural hybridity has had on his work his long-standing focus on existing buildings, and how the most minimal of interventions can achieve the most transformative effect, and how embracing the seeming futility of architecture can sometimes paradoxically lead to the most optimistic and productive kind of work. And now, this is Takiro Shimazaki. It's like a... It's like a therapy appointment. (laughs) (laughs) For me too. Um, We could probably just begin at the beginning uh, with your childhood in Japan and uh, your exposure to your grandfather's practice. That was a really formative experience for you, watching your grandfather work. Yes. So I think when I was about 11 in Tokyo, my parents decided, well, my, I think my grandfather decided to develop one part of uh, this, this land that, you know, they lived in since my grandfather was a student. Or just, you know, just graduated, I think. Um, so he developed his own house and then about 10 years later, um, my parents and he decided to develop uh, our side of the plot. and. I um I got a chance to follow the design process. I mean, I was 11, so obviously <laughs> didn't know what design process was, obviously, but um got to see these kind of big, you know, um uh blue dye drawings and um being on site with the uh, uh the the site architect and my parents um just walking around this kind of you know, exposed wooden structure uh, spaces it's literally a skeleton wooden skeleton with but but you can already feel the plan mm. and you can already visit spaces and and i remember the conversation my mother was having about you know oh this is where this bathroom would be and this is going to be quite private this is going to be quite open space and i just remember thinking my god this is such an exciting thing mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's a funny limbo state, I, I imagine, to be in, yes, or to be exposed to as a child, between, yes. on the one hand, the ideal of the design, as your grandfather would probably be discussing with you, yes, or with your mother, 
and then the reality of the construction site, which is not not yet real in a way. Yes. And there's something very strange about that position. Yes. Which is a position that all architects occupy. On the one hand, speculating constantly through drawing and model making. Yes. And on the other hand, contending with all kinds of often very inconvenient realities. Yes. I think then I became more and more aware of what my grandfather was doing. And he was obviously, uh, uh, you know, already quite elderly. So he studied at Tokyo University with Kenzo. You know, he was a year below Kenzo Tange, I think. So that kind of period of modernism. Mm -hmm. And then, so kind of big kind of aspirations to Kabusie, etc. And he then uh, worked for Mitsubishi Estate, which at the time was, you know, uh, like a lot of these uh, commercial firms, they had the architectural department where they designed um, quite a lot of amazing, you know, uh, very urban um, uh, high-rise buildings or modernist kind of public buildings. And, and just watching yeah, watching his kind of life as well as sort of working on Chinese calligraphy, mm. uh, you know, towards the end, especially if he wasn't going to work, he was kind of doing a lot of these kind of calligraphy at home with piles of written paper <laughs> piling up in his study. Um, but this whole idea that, you know, you could just be quite... <laughs> He just seemed to be enjoying life, you know, in, in many ways. Uh, he was also into cameras, like Leica lens cameras. And um, and then, yeah, so around sort of 13, I got to sit down with my grandfather quite a lot after, after dinner, looking at world maps, mm. <laughs> Atlas, uh, and him telling me stories of his travels around, the, around Europe or Asia. Um, stories like, you know, when him and his colleagues went to visit Picasso in a studio in France. And all of that was just, I mean, obviously, you know, I had no idea who Picasso was, etc. But just this, this whole kind of narrative of his life and what, 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 <laughs> what an architect seemed to be mm -hmm. doing at, at the time was very, very exciting. Uh, it sounds like it's almost as much a way of living as a way of working. It, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I want to talk more about this way of life that your grandfather modeled for you. His travels, his kind of worldliness, and how that maybe enticed you into following a similar path. So you grew up in Japan, but moved to the UK as a teenager, is that right? You were 13? Yeah, I was 13, 13 and a half. Uh, my father worked for, well, got a job. Uh, for BBC World Service for three and a half years, which was something that he promised my mother when they got married that they would live in the UK. Okay. <laughs> because my mother, I think, really had this fascination with England. Uh, I found out, I discovered this later, but you know, apparently that's what he promised her that that they would they would one day live in London, because mm. um, she studied in America in high school, which was quite rare at the time, but she, she had the opportunity to go, to go on an exchange or something. To... Anyway, so I, I didn't really um, 
make an effort to to move move away from Japan. Uh, it was just something that happened, mm. and at the time, it was actually <laughs> something I didn't you know I I, I didn't want to to do. I didn't want to move. <laughs> I was loving my life in Tokyo, uh, but um, this idea of um, also following his footsteps. I don't know. I did. I did decide that I wanted to do architecture very, very early. So I think I already knew when I came to England that one day I would like to do something to do with architecture. But um, yeah, it's it's not until much, much later when I started traveling with, you know, to see buildings or um, to to take students uh, abroad or that I started to kind of rediscover what we were talking about on that mm -hmm. dining table um, when I was younger. And you mentioned your father worked for the BBC. So he was a foreign correspondent? He worked for the, uh, it's called the World Service, right. which is kind of like a radio program mm -hmm. that um, several, yes, um, correspondents from Japan, from different broadcasting companies would come and there were about eight of them, I think, in, um, in Bush House in Holborn, um, making a program or news or... And he was, in a way, observing British culture yes. for an audience of Japanese viewers living exactly, abroad. Exactly, exactly, worldwide, yes. And there's a real kind of element of anthropology there uh, in terms of how he's considering this culture up close as an outsider? Yes. I mean, what kind of projects was he working on? What were you exposed to uh, in his work? I mean, he was pretty free, I, I remember. Uh, as long as there was this sort of, I think, 15 minutes of news slot that he, he had to translate and then speak himself. I mean, he wasn't a... He wasn't a um, What's the word? A presenter. A presenter in Japan. He was working in, I think, sales at the time in a broadcasting corporation. So it was all new to him. But then, you know, his English wasn't as good as my mother's, but he, he, he translated uh, 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 English news into Japanese and then s spoke himself. Right. But he'd do like small documentary projects. Yeah. So then on... on so, so like 15 minutes of news, and then after that, you you were free to uh, uh, make a, a program of your choice, I think. And he made a <laughs> he made a, this this series called um, something like the the English dog <laughs> dog owner story <laughs> or a dog story a dog a story on dogs really about the British love of pets and dogs and parks. So he would travel around England, you know, interviewing, <laughs> uh, yeah, dog owners and um, have a really kind of in-depth conversation, probably like this, and record and then, and then, yeah, make a program just based on their, their lifestyles and what they, you know, what, what they did with, what they, yeah, what they did when they went for walks, what kind of conversations they were having. Um, there was even a theme tune, you know. <laughs> <laughs> With, um, I hope we can dig it out. That sounds. <laughs> I would love to hear it. But what's so interesting to me about this is that 
you're exposed to a certain attitude towards this new culture, which is that it's a curiosity and it's strange but intriguing. And um, at least in your father's case, he's on the outside looking in. To what extent did you acclimate to being British? Oh, that's, that's a very difficult... Or have you ever? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> have I ever? I don't know. Uh, it's a very interesting journey, but just on my father first, I think he really found it hard. Um, my mum spoke quite f very fluent English, um, so it was a lot easier for her also to make friends. Da, da, da. You know, my father was um, also quite shy, so he, <laughs> I remember even now, like, you know, it's a sort of family joke, but he tried, he, he tried to buy a packet of Rothmans cigarettes and he couldn't say it <laughs> because you know the Japanese R and the L thing and um, and oh god I remember like there was a queue forming behind us he's saying like Rothmans Rothmans and the guy uh, the lady behind the counter couldn't understand and then eventually oh Rothmans you know and they're doing this and I felt so bad you know about that but uh we laugh about it now, um, but I, yeah, I remember that was sort of this kind of blockage. Um, and it was similar for me. I mean, I had younger sister who came at nine. She became British straight away after like, you know, like a month. And me and my other sister sort of like looking outside, you know, through a window going like, God, how is she making friends, you know? <laughs> so it took me a long time. It's all, it's all very easy to say like, you know, um, uh, 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 we're all just human or you know this kind of we all we're all human we're not bound by nationality or culture but we are you know we're we're products of our habits and mm -hmm. what we're used to context what we grew up with and to suddenly change at that age where you're already quite formed you know at 13 14 let alone people who I, I've always admired students who sort of enrolled to our course at the AA or something at the age of 19, 20, you know, maybe you're formed well enough to adapt to those situations, but I'm always, yeah, admirable of people who, who are able to move around different cultures and... Um, in a way, it's a different kind of limbo to be in, yes. between these two cultures. Yes. So you studied at Cardiff and then the Bartlett uh, architecture at both schools. And then you started working not for a British architect, but for a Japanese one in Tokyo. You were working at Itsuko Hasegawa's. So what prompted the decision to return to Japan after your education? Yeah, so I suppose, yeah, limbo is quite a nice way of describing it because I, I always had in the back of my mind, I would one day go back. My two sisters went back before me. My parents went back at, at when I was 16. So I, th I always also thought that once I've done my school, I would go back. But then when I started looking at architecture schools in Japan and in England or the UK, I realized that um, the courses here were so much more uh, hands-on, you know, and uh, you, you get, what, 50 students a year, whereas in Japan you get hundreds uh, in first year. So 
That was the first kind of decision making where I decided to stay here to study architecture here. And then in, in my year three in Cardiff, um, there was a big, at the time, very, very kind of big competition where um, uh, a Cardiff Opera House competition where um, Hasegawa, San and Zaha Hadid and Foster and others were sh long listed at the time. And um, I, I thought, what, what an amazing opportunity to have a Japanese architect working in Cardiff. Mm. And I sent a fax to her office, I remember from this university office on my graduation day. <laughs> and uh, just a very naive letter to Hasegawa-san's office to say, can I work for you? <laughs> and incredibly, uh, I think it was the summer and I went back for my holidays to, to be with my parents. On the first day, I, I, I put a date when I was coming back and um, first day I got a call from Hasegawa-san's office to say, can you come for an interview tomorrow? <laughs> Which was amazing and I, I was interviewed by um, yeah, a couple of project architects, with one of whom I'm still very much in touch with. And I was hired the next day and, you know, I said, when you, can you come? And, um, yeah, uh, it, was, it was great. It was sort of mo lots of model making, um, staying up very late, uh, which was a sort of very Japanese architectural culture. I think her office is much better than most um, in that, you know, they paid very well uh, or covered my time really well um, but yeah it's still part of that culture of you know um, I don't know she would return from site at like 10 o'clock and then we would be showing her models for proposals and then it all changes <laughs> and you're doing it all again and, but I mean, it was for a short time and I could survive but I, I didn't think I could I could work like that for a longer period maybe but but then eventually when I started to work in London for, with Yuli, um, you know, we kept in touch with Hasegawa-san. So this is Yuli To, who mm. is your business partner mm. uh, in the practice. Um, when did you set up with Yuli? So actually, I was, uh, initially I, I was um, an employee. I didn't think a big, large practice was for me after trying several practices. And um, so rather than sort of a named kind of practice or internationally well-known practice, I, I had an opportunity to um, work for Yuli through a recommendation from Simon Smithson, who's Alison and Peter's son who worked at Rogers. So when I finished the Bartlett, I worked for her for, I don't know, two, three, three, four years. At which time she then sort of asked if I wanted to become a partner of the practice. I was again at this kind of junction where I was thinking of returning to Japan. <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't let go, I guess. But then um, this, this offer of, of, of uh, this challenge of sort of running a practice together, I thought was uh, an incredible one that I, you know, was... Uh, well, not that we had that many projects or anything, but just, you know, we had three or four interesting things to do. And yeah, so, so I, I stayed. Mm. And this was after you worked at Richard Rogers? Yeah, yeah. But before you, you worked briefly for Peter Smithson, is that right? Yes. 
So that came a bit later. Um, so about two years after, two or three years after we, we were running practice together, Yuli and I, Yuli very generously sort of offered to me, uh, would you like to go and do a sabbatical with Peter? Um, she just said, you know, you're not going to get that many chances like this. Um, so she very, very generously looking back said, I don't know, two, three days a week, you could go to Smithson's office stroke house to draw with, with Peter and Lorenzo Wong, who was Peter's right-hand man. And this was after Alison had passed away? Yes. So I never really met Alison, but uh, under Peter and Lorenzo, I was tasked with doing some axonometrics for their last project, Hexen House in Germany. Axel, the client who's the owner of um, Tecta Factory, um, uh, worked with a lot of modernists in his time. This and is Axel Bruckhauser? Yes. And it's a furniture making company? Exactly. Um, uh, they've collaborated with artists, uh, architects, um, um, you know, Marcel Breuer, um, Gropius, and um, I think that the, the, the ambition was to design like a Mies-like pavilion in the woods and uh, but they couldn't find a plot or they couldn't get a permission so they, um, they, they, they decided to keep the house that they found in this, in this um, forest and began by designing a small porch I think it was Alison and Axel sort of sketching one day and decided to do a porch project it was a very small project but mm. I mean, I wasn't that familiar with this project really up until recently. And when, when I think about the Smithsons, like most people, I think about the Upper Lion Pavilion or Robin Hood Gardens. I think about brutalism and streets in the sky. Yeah. What I don't think about is a kind of esoteric, bohemian agglomeration in the woods, yes. which is precisely what this is. Yes. It's an accumulation of forms over time. I mean, the project started in 1986 and completed, if you could call it complete, in 2002. I think it's still going, by the way. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, this is a, a very late work. Yes. And um, a kind of breakthrough in a way. Yes. That you were witness to. And I, I want to know more about what you saw. <laughs> well, you, were yeah. drawing, you were drawing. I was drawing, I was tasked to draw kind of the axonometrics around the house of bits that they were designing at that time or even archival sort of parts. So there's a mix, you know, like sort of moving forward, but also like reflecting. They, they were also, there's this sort of uh, uh, diligence to be drawing something that's already built as an after thing for record, I guess. Um, because Peter worked upstairs in his own off studio and then Lorenzo and I were downstairs in the basement, um, I was, my day-to-day -day communication was with Lorenzo and I asked him lots of questions about, you know, what does this mean, what, what, what does this angle mean? Or, Lorenzo didn't really know either. I mean, he would be guessing and he would be telling me lots of stories like I think it's to do with, I don't know, reflecting nature or it's about this view or 
there certainly was a lot of thought into how Axel used that space and how there's this interaction with the surroundings, how it, the house feels like this kind of paradise in that kind of uh, setting, this kind of view down towards the, the, the bottom, you know, the, the bottom, the, 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 the ground and the leaves and the, the roof is covered with, you know, these kind of incredible uh, leaves and yeah, so I mean, it sounds like it's it's very cryptic as a project, but also the design process itself yes. um, was relatively opaque. There is this almost archetypal master-disciple relationship that Peter seemed to have with um, you and Lorenzo. Probably, yes. Um, or maybe, it's, yeah, it's just a sort of the way he was maybe I don't know I mean we we would suddenly get this treat where he would come downstairs with a super eight kind of film of like the, I don't know like the rebuild of Mies Pavilion or something and Peter would come down and say let's watch a film <laughs> and he would sort of go around closing all the blinds in the studio space and we would just sit there and watch this kind of projection he's explaining something but it's just I, I often I couldn't quite understand some of the stories uh, but really, really, you know, enticing. And Lorenzo would actually give me a, a, a small feedback session afterwards, <laughs> this kind of interpretation session. That's, that's what I mean, though. There's a kind of necessary translation that occurs when um, yes. a drawing by the master is handed to the disciple to, to kind of render into architecture. Yes, but... It was just, a, so Axel, the client, and, and Alistair and Peter also corresponded via this imaginary, well, not imaginary, but both of their cats were yes. the, the, the authors of the letters. Uh -huh. <laughs> this is something I wanted to ask you about. So there are, there's a correspondence, a kind of fictitious correspondence between the cats of Axel and Peter. Yes. What all, uh, I think all design discussions were done through the cats. Like in the voice of the cats, as if they yes. were speaking to each other. Yes. By mail. Signed off, you know, by the by the. <laughs> Do you remember the their cats. names? Simkin, I think it's Alison and Peter. But Simkin, is the same. I think it's the same name through all generations of <laughs> cats that they've had. So, I think it's exactly the same name. That, uh -huh. You know that all the cats that they've had. I could be wrong, but I think Simkin is is. It's the Smithson's cat. I forget Axel's cat. I have actually, I have a copy of a letter from Axel to to me actually with uh, authored by his cat. Yeah, this is so absurd. I mean, it's so it's so playful and um, ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and refreshing in a way. It's re it was really refreshing for me. But it's also I think that that lack of inhibition. And that sense of almost childlike fantasy yes. that was shared between Peter and Axel was somehow indicative to you of how productive a client-architect relationship could be and how, in a way, how personal and intimate it can be. Yes. And the, the fact that, I mean, as a result, the building itself benefited tremendously. Yeah. That it really was a collaboration. Yeah, yeah. 
and Axel, every time I went to see him, I, I, I went three or four times, a couple of times with uh, taking the whole office and every time he's just so excited by the house, you know, you, you, he calls it his paradise and paradise on earth and I, I you could really sense it, you know, every little porch you sit in or uh, floor that becomes the ledge towards the kind of landscape or the tea pavilion or, um, yeah, it's, uh, or the wine room, which is that kind of tall pavilion that you go through this via this bridge. It's got this glass floor. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's an incredible place. Maybe this is an opportunity to, to talk more about your client relationships. And there's, <laughs> you look a bit apprehensive. <laughs> but I'm thinking of one project in particular that you showed me recently, which is the Yard Theatre in Hackney Wick. Yeah. Which to me, as a project, feels like its own departure. Yeah. Uh, when we look at your broader portfolio of work, it's a very strange building. <laughs> Thank you. And... <laughs> I imagine that the client is also, the, the client must be a certain way to allow you to liberate that strangeness in the work. Yeah. So could you talk a bit about the yard as a project and how, how you came into this position of um, basically designing a building that to me makes me feel like I've just taken a tab of acid. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah, Jay would love that. So um, we were long listed, I think, um, for for uh, 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 an opportunity to work for the yards. Um, uh, kind of, I think Jay calls it the the the. the growing up project so so kind of more seats a bigger presence in hackney wick and what's his full name jay miller jay miller artistic director okay i remember at the first very first interview with sam hansford and jay miller um when they came to this office i met met them i thought my god this is a, a type of project that's going to really push us it's really going to put us into a, get us out of our comfort zone. And I remember feeling very, very excited by that and the conversations that we were having, feeling slightly out of depth in terms of where this might go. Um, I mean, you know, working with Peter and Lorenzo are probably quite a good example of this, you know, feeling slightly out of depth in terms of the uh search for something beyond what we already know in terms of a, an architectural language and we could already see in the way you know even the way jay was dressed or the kind of conversations we were having in the interview um and so so yeah this is this is a sort of um reuse project like our other projects but it's 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 a lot of our other projects but it's um at the same time, it's about like taking the yard to the next step, you know, and bringing all the activities they do into one building. So community 
center aspect or the youth program aspect, theater, performance, nightclub, all of those things coming into one, one place. I think the, 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 the original scheme that practice architecture did is, is, is still incredible and uh, the energy there is, is great and this kind of creature, this kind of pink creature of a sort of auditorium coming sort of squashing into this bar space is absolutely wonderful. So we were sort of thinking all the time how do we capture this spirit of the yard that exists there but elevate it and Jay, Jay's approach is, is, is very much that he's very much done with minimalism he 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 really kind of he's the you know he's the the, the leader of 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 providing diversity and the idea of excess idea of maximalism and uh, i very much enjoy that journey of of seeing thinking how could we bring an architect or how can we bring architectural language into this that you know that captures this spirit and just to to try and describe it yes to listeners who may not have seen the project we're just looking at a few images now the the project was granted planning consent in october of 2023 or was well like, actually it's just come through oh really <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was submitted then yeah it was just come through yeah it? okay um Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, but looking at it, it, it feels like, uh, like it's incomplete. Or it feels like it's a structure that much more can be added to later. Yes. Uh, it has this, this tall space frame tower, uh, red kind of tensile structure with the fluorescent sign. Yes. Pink and yellow. And then there's this strange tapestry of technicolor bricks, yes. um, some of which are used to make the sign of the building. And it's kind of skin scintillating, like you can almost see it shimmering and moving. Yes. But then a lot of the building seems like it's just been left as it is. I mean, there's another model I saw of it before. Maybe this was a, a different phase, or maybe it's actually here, where a lot of the existing facade is just kept graffiti and all. Yeah. And it's this dense mural of always changing imagery. Yeah. As people continue to tag and tag yeah. again. And um, it seems to really embody this attitude of doing, in a way, as little as possible with a maximal effect. Yes. And I want you to talk more about that attitude, which has made its way into your teaching as well. And you've written, I think, in a recent column for the Architecture Foundation, that in the, in the practice, you discuss doing less, both in practice and in architecture, using less materials, resources, and labor, but also less in our workload, less meetings, less emails, less travel. We discuss the challenge of balancing this intention with both the client's aspirations and our own. And it really looks like the building is embodying this attitude in some ways. And it's not that it's not doing enough. It's doing, in some ways, much more than enough. It's a maximalist building. But at the same time, it does have this economy 
of means and efficiency. So I wonder if you could talk more about coming to terms with doing less in a project like this. I guess all of it is through necessity in a way. I mean, I, I know that sounds a bit boring, but it's everything about the practice you know what we've done over the over the years as well as this yard project i think you know it, it's all through necessity you know we we search quite hard about like where do you spend your money or where not and you know so if we can keep something let's keep it and let it even as you say about graffiti let it just evolve you know it's a it's a it's a, it's a living thing but things like waste brick which is this kind of um, colorful brick facade that you're talking about um, we kind of researched about okay what you know how can we use masonry because one of the things that we did discuss is about this element of permanence so not not all of it is about temporality but there are you know in theater or in civic public buildings you need this sense of permanence or some sort of gravitas so our way was to sort of then go okay let's f discover this waste brick k brick uh, is a company i think um where they you know where we just said okay let's use um, about five of their range of colors to create this pattern um, but that's where we focused our money on as well as obviously the the the, the interior of the auditorium is very very important for the yard uh, but the bar space, you know, we could just keep it uh, with the spirit of the, the existing. We're going to add one or two artifacts or, or figures into that space. But essentially, it's about the, the journey and the different, you know, experience of the different spaces that needs to be really enhanced to, um, you know, 250% of the, the existing. So how can we do that with color, some of the materials we bring? I mean... What I also find really interesting with Jay is that, you know, we bring, say, like some, oh, yes, you know, it's the yard, it's Hackneywick, let's bring some industrial materials. Immediately, it's like rejected. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, that's just too generic, it's too kind of expected. Mm -hmm. You know, let's bring in this kind of idea of like a traditional classic Soho theatre environment with sort of um, disgusting carpet and really terrible lighting conditions and... The, the, you know, like these kind of uh, multicolored kind of lighting effects, etc. Anyway, these kind of really interesting references like that, where we went to see some, you know, I don't know, musical theatres or... And then this idea of bringing what's the equivalent of that in Hackney Wick today. <laughs> I love that what it sounds like the client, what Jay Miller is encouraging you to do, is to to be gauche, to be awkward yeah to be in bad taste yeah definitely how else how else was he i don't think you? he thinks of it as bad taste but yes yes because i mean taste to me is uh it's so destructive yes that um it suggests a necessary conformism yes and consensus yes and the yard as a project um is absolutely non-conformist and it's a totally different language, if we could call it that, of architecture, than we, we see in other work from the practice. So at this point, I want to find a kind of polarity, a kind of opposition, which I see in a project 
uh, at the Barbican in Shakespeare Tower, <laughs> which is um, something else altogether. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Can you talk about this apartment you designed in 2019? Yes. Um, well, in, in that project, I mean, it's similar in a way that what I found very interesting was this couple, very nice clients who lived in Japan for a very long time. They know so much about Japanese culture. Um, he's American, she's English. And, you know, they've been to every prefecture in Japan, traveled around every prefecture in Japan. They're very well read and well kind of traveled in terms of architecture as well. And they wanted us to imagine a Japanese, quite traditional Japanese space inside of the Shakespeare Tower, this kind of brutalist building. And initially I, I was quite, you know, it's quite a sort of, again, it, I don't think it's too dissimilar. It's quite a difficult concept to understand. And we talk about it now as well. And of course, we don't want to make a souvenir, Japanese souvenir shop or a, you know, a Japanese restaurant in Rome. You know, you kind of want to make something quite authentic. And you don't want to make a novelty. No. Or a caricature of a culture. Yes. And well, I, I kind of said the other day to, to, to the clients that, of course, we didn't want to make anything that's pastiche. And this, of course, this is pastiche. <laughs> that's the thing, though. <laughs> That's the thing, it absolutely is, Yeah. but not in a bad way. I feel like that word is somehow especially here in this city. Yeah. I never really heard it until I moved here. Right. I guess everyone's so conscious of history and the, yes. the, the weight of history yes. and the influence of history. But it's true, it must bear down especially hard on you as a Japanese architect Yes. who is, who is also... Sorry, go ahead. No, even that idea of a Japanese architect, that's never happened to me in the 20 years, you know, like someone... Yeah, like they, they approached you as a Japanese architect with a brief to make a Japanese interior. Hmm. And it's very faithful in the materials and construction methods hmm. and detailing. Hmm. Um, it's very, in a way, you could say academic, or it's responsible for sure. <laughs> yeah. in a way that the yard um, is so clearly not and I want I want to, to 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 learn more from you about what that meant to be approached as a Japanese architect for the first time yes to explore this way of designing that you never really seem to have done before in your own work no. and haven't since we're doing one that's okay. similar, but yeah, no, uh, I, yeah. So initially it was a bit of, a bit of what do we do here? Uh, we had, uh, this, um, uh, uh, architect called Haruka Nogami, a Japanese architect in our practice at the time. And there was a lot of discussion here in the office, um, through models and reading and the way I think so we started to enjoy more and more as we started to draw, draw. Uh, and, and, you know, the clients were very, very open culturally. It wasn't like they were just interested in traditional architecture. They were also interested in Shinohara, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, Shirai 
and so on, other, other modernists as well in Japan, who equally grappled with this idea of traditional Japan and this modernist language coming from Europe at the time. And one that I particularly found really exciting to study at the time was Seiichi Shirai, who, is a, who studied philosophy in Germany, went back to Japan and started practicing architecture. And I, I gave a talk about him in London Met, but he was a particularly interesting architect to study in terms of this kind of search for language. And in his case, he moved to Europe, studied philosophy, well, he, I think he intended to study architecture, but he kind of got more and more interested in philosophy. And then, but he said that he later sort of looked at Corb and Mies, etc. And then went back to Japan and started practicing. And I think throughout his career, he was always an outsider, as opposed to this mainstream trajectory of Tangei, Sozaki, Kurokawa, etc. and so on. There was always Shirai in a slight side that's doing his own thing, where he's kind of incorporating classicism, Western classicism into Japanese traditional architecture, etc. It seemed to me that style was not his, how do you say? No, he could, yeah, he could transcend a style. He could actually almost do whatever. Um, I kind of met with, um, Irenae Skalba a few times to talk about Shirai because I think he's also interested in him and we discuss about this and to him he was saying that Shirai's work is like a mirror of Western culture you know because sometimes it looks a little bit like bad Western architecture in a, in a good way uh, it looks like this kind of imitation but mm. but that clumsiness is really quite interesting to me and I mean, I, I, I would get shot down by, you know, Shirai fans if I said that. But it, it's this 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 uh, search for language, whether it's traditional Japanese or Western classicism or Baroque or um, modernism even. Um, I thought that was just a fascinating model to study. And Haruka and I sort of read a lot of Shirai's written work and drawings and, and we managed to uh, incorporate some of the, probably quite subtly, and it's, 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 it's not something that is probably obvious to a lot of people, but in terms of even just the floor, floor boundaries, uh, this kind of, this octagonal uh, column. column, which is not holding anything up, it's quite symbolic, really. That's in the in the in the um, corner of the tatami mat, the tatami mat room where uh, we installed, you know, um, authentic tatami that the clients had from Japan uh, brought over, and um, we kind of designed a room to fit the tatami mats. I like this this reference you made to the, the many languages that uh, architecture can speak. Um, and it makes me wonder more about your attachment to that idea of architectural language, um, which is quite abstract and, to me, challenging to talk about. But I wonder if we could, for a moment, focus on this idea of the subjectivity of language, 
This is the title of a talk you gave? Yes, yes. The Subjectivity of Language in Metropolitan Architecture. Yes. Can you help me unpack that title? Sorry, yes. Because I'm, I'm totally beguiled by it. And I think it might have something to do with maybe what we're talking about, but maybe not. I think it does. I mean, just to talk, talk it simply, uh -huh. maybe, without sort of this sort of <laughs> academic jargon. But it's, I, I think I'm genuinely interested in the idea of um, multiplicity of language. So in my teaching, but also in practice work, you know, subjectivity always comes into everything. So I, I think, you know, just like life, how, how, how does this kind of individuality or subjectivity, because even if you copy something, it's bound to be different. It's bound to reflect something of that author or something of that person drawing or... Um, so I, I think I'm generally interested in the relationship between the overall collective language, collective uh, approach to things versus the subjectivity. So how do these things ever merge or ever, ever work together or or speak to each other because the collective language is constantly evolving because the subjective subjective languages must also be evolving uh, and different all the time so you know one can the same one can learn about paradio but obviously you 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 may you may have different outcomes if you're sort of mm -hmm. different practices learning from the same. So in a way it's about interpretation or how individuals make sense of what we might think of as consensus references? Probably. And I guess it, it might go back to the origin of limbo that you were talking about earlier, about this being in this cultural limbo versus, you know, where do you belong? You know, what's, what's the overall thing that you belong to that can be described as a collective. And um, where do you belong? <laughs> <laughs> How would you describe your collective? That's a good question. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know really because sometimes I belong to this... Well, I mean, just put it simply, you know, sometimes you belong to the school that you're teaching in. You know, when you're teaching at the AA, that's very different to when you're teaching at London Met. But there's a collegial discussion that takes place, mm -hmm. which are obviously clearly very different in the different schools. Mm -hmm. There are other architects that you, one one admire and talk to regularly. Is that the collective? Not sure, uh, but very much so. You know, that network of other architects and. It's about affiliation in a way. Affiliation, yeah. This is maybe a good time to talk more about teaching. And in particular, I think maybe how you began teaching, which was in a very unaffiliated way. Maybe this happened in between teaching at different architectural schools, but at some point the practice, um, TSA, created a, a teaching project outside of institutions called Forum, where there was no accreditation, there was no bureaucracy, 
the curriculum was determined entirely by the practice. And students who participated were at all stages of life and in, in career as well. And this, this is out, entirely outside of the consensus, the contemporary consensus of teaching architecture. This isn't completely unaffiliated. Yes. So I want to know what, how, how you instigated this teaching project, how you decided to pursue this. Yeah, that's a very interesting topic. Though. It's very unusual. I don't think I've seen it. Maybe the equivalent is in something like Taliesin. Maybe Frank Lloyd Wright. I mean, I can't think of other architects who, they must exist, but who have these like off-grid teaching initiatives that um, don't rely on institutional support or structure. So I was, you know, I was, I, I started teaching in an institution um, first year and uh, it was, a, I, I remember thinking, I, I did it for quite a long time, five, six years, and I got to a point where the, 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 the weight of the institution and was, was sort of getting in a way of really having a meaningful dialogue with each student and to be really hands-on and being involved with each student's work and to develop, to develop um, a discourse. And I think it was because, you know, obviously it was early days of my teaching and you don't have as much control or connection and, you know, you're not allowed. You, you've got like your eight hours a week and you go back to your practice. So I just had this, I don't know where it came from, but I just had this idea of like, well, why don't I just do this myself? Something myself or workshop maybe. So the first year I just sort of came up with the idea. I wrote down an A4 business plan, <laughs> just handwritten business plan, just thinking, well, maybe I, something is possible. So I then, I had quite a few connections in architecture university courses in Japan and some good friends who teach professors. So I sort of said, can I come and give a talk to promote this course that I might want to do? And uh, yeah, so the first year, 2006, I think, I managed to get about 12, 13 students, uh, no, 10 students from Japan. And I managed to, so it was a fee paying because we needed to do, you know, and uh, I managed to distribute some of that to scholarship to mix that with some home students here. And somehow we had a four week workshop in London next to the Four weeks. Four weeks. Yeah. One month where the idea is also that people from TSA's practice could teach. So it was really about bridging the gap between academia and uh, academia and practice. And I remember I wrote an article for Blueprint at the time. Someone asked me to do an article on the AA and the Bartlett's end of your show or something. And I, I, I wrote something about like, you know, there's a big gap between what we're doing in academia and what we're actually, you finish your school and then you go into practice and you're suddenly dealing with NBS specifications or something. Mm. And the two didn't really talk to each other. So I was really keen to invite as many practitioners as possible, artists, contractors, structure engineers, and our clients actually together with the students in one place. So we had 
someone like Kieran Long doing a crit with our client, house extension client, with a structure engineer and a builder critting uh, students' work uh, in the four-week workshop. And we had uh, lectures from different artists, architects. And it was a sort of an amazing way for me to connect with different practices that I, I wanted to affiliate with. Um, and people were so, everyone was so generous, you know, and they came and uh, we would normally have an office visit to these practices where we would spend a couple of hours with um, architects. They show us their studios and then they would give us a talk to the students. Um, yeah, this is very, you know, 2006, uh, like all the practices that are very big practices now, mm. they were so generous with their time and um, yeah, it was wonderful. And I, it carried on for 10 years. Yeah, it's amazing the kind of participants or contributors you were able to involve. The, it really seems like, so first of all, I mean, we could look through this, some of the books here, but you had um, Charles Holland and Pierre Devoin, Jonathan Hill one year, um, Sergis and Bates, um, yeah, Tom Emerson Tom did Emerson. a great talk at South London Gallery. <laughs> and every year you published a book to correspond with the studio. Yeah. And that in itself is also highly unusual. To take, to take the project of teaching um, so seriously and with such dedication uh, as to create this archival document, it's really astounding, actually. And I mean, there's one... There's one book in particular, uh, this is the TSA forum from, I think, 2018, mm -hmm. um, where you'd, as you had in other years, invited essays from contributors. Mm -hmm. And one of the essays at the back of this book was so compelling to me. Um, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> so it's called The Pedagogy of Futility, or When Curiosity Saved the Cat. It's written by Sabrina Pudu and Francesco Zudas. And what it's doing is, in a way, assessing this interest that the studio this year had in the rural or in the exurban, and how basically that year through a focus on rural landscapes, the studio had found a way of escaping the utilitarian trap that metropolitan architects have found themselves in. Mm. And there's this analogy that um, Sabrina and Francesco make between the opportunities of the rural, often kind of futile projects that don't necessarily have a program or an explicit use, maps onto the opportunities of your way of teaching, which in itself is a relatively futile project. And so far as students can't get credits, they can't get certified, and yeah, like they're writing that anything that does not have an immediate return is by definition excluded. 
And learning, by definition, is a slow process. Learning falls among the victims of the cycles of production and consumption that have reshaped educational institutions into machines devoted to immediate returns. Jobs, careers, faculty salaries, research funds, and so on. And in a way, what this forum project, this, this independent teaching project, seems to have been doing is short-circuiting that utility of the architecture studio and offering up some other kind of possibility, which, as the essay suggests, might in fact be futile. <laughs> but um, for some reason, I was so drawn to, to the attempt, at least. Yes. That year was magical because we're working in a rural environment. We've been working in this rural project for now about seven years. And we have this wonderful client again um, who uh, we can discuss about, you know, uh, kind of almost dreamy um, 200 year span projects about this estate. And in it, we have. Uh, like an Elysium, a boathouse, bridge, these kind of elements in the parkland. And this is very much why we, we, we did that year. And the client came and we were talking about what it means to dive into a pool, natural pool from, from your boathouse or what's the architecture of that. But, but in our day and age, we would do that with timber or found wood from the estate. So those were really very much the, the type of conversation we were having with the clients. And I think it was that time that, you know, Jonathan Hill came, Professor Jonathan Hill from the Bartlett, who sadly passed away last year, came to talk to us that, you know, we're all cultural beings. We're all part of this history, the long, uh, and within this big framework, we can dream, you know, we can kind of, I don't know, that was a very, very interesting conversation between, between architectural critics, clients, um, guests, um, talking about these imaginary drawings and situations. And what it reminds me of in a way is this other fixation that your teaching studios have had on the relationship between the ideal and the real. Yes. So one year you took students to survey a bunch of Palladian villas. Yes. But after studying the original yes. pre-construction plans. Yes. And what you'd done with the students was mapped on top of these perfectly drawn plans, the surveyed reality of the building. Yes. Which in many cases was devastatingly different. Yes. Staggeringly different. Yeah, yeah. And there's a kind of futility there as well, I think. Yeah. And the optimism of, of the ideal plan in the face of the reality of it as it's constructed. Yeah. I just wonder if you could talk more about this discrepancy and why you're drawn to it between the ideal and the real. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder where it comes from, but we were, you know, we were researching Palladio from the notion of uh, 
this idea of formal correction. So, and we were very much looking at Palladio's work through uh, the notion of reuse. So, I mean, at the t obviously, I, I, don't, I don't think I used the word reuse anyway. It was to do with what happens on site <laughs> and working with what's there already. And so, you know, when we discovered that the Basilica in Vicenza is a re reuse project of original Gothic kind of inner bit and then this kind of colonnade on the outside to formally correct the proportions, compositions, etc., for the for the benefit of the cityscape. I found that's a really, really interesting topic and very, very suited to today's issues. Like what can architects do with as little as possible to just adjust something that's existing to give that civic uh, uh, um, expression. So, you know, it's not so much that, and again, this is all coming from the necessity because that's what our practice have been able to only do, you know, starting from house extensions, starting with projects that were about like working with existing and grappling with it and seeing, thinking, where's the architecture here? So, so I think that, that was a sort of an academic exercise in thinking, okay, what is the, the enough or little you can do to just twist existing? I mean, in Palladio's case, obviously it's not just twisting, it's kind of grand. Um, um, colonnade, etc. But it was this sort of we were trying to teach in 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 these existing buildings in Leicester. What can you do with these existing amazing buildings uh, to just just formally correct something to give it the new civic um, aspirations that suited to twenty first century? And what are the tools that you can? You can do this with this. So we wanted to really highlight to the students that, and, and ourselves that there are these discrepancies between the ideal, ideal architectural Im, uh, imagination and, uh, and the reality of tolerance and conflicts and um, things just bashing into each other, which is really exciting. So in these kind of chaotic, real situations, how how does architecture kind of come in or survive and in in our case our, our hours in practice but also students this contemporary generation we have very little opportunity to do architecture you know we have very little sort of gap <laughs> to to have this enjoyment of you know expression so um it's it's how do you how do you keep that alight how do you keep that alive but it's a metaphor. I mean, it's a metaphor for a way of teaching and a way of practicing that um, in a way embraces the seeming futility of the project. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, That's this a nice, kind of, nice way of describing it, yes. It, it brings me to this question of what can a small practice do? Which I think is it's something that's come up in other conversations you've had. What kind of impact really can a small architectural practice interested in design, what impact can it have on the shape of the city, um, the way we convene with each other, the way we live more broadly? 
because sometimes I can imagine, especially in the context of, especially in London, in the context of this increasing growth and consolidation of practices, mm, mm. corporatization mm. of architectural culture, yes, and um, fear of risk yes. in developers and clients, it seems in a way like less and less is possible for small practices. Yes, I agree. Um, we've always been small, uh, although sort of just around the time, until about the sort of Lehman shock kind of financial crisis time, 2008, like, like other practices, we, we, we were thinking about growth, you know. Um, but that was a, quite a scarring experience anyway. But also, I think, as you say, you know, with this futile territory, um, it keeps us quite free, <laughs> keeps us quite liberated, not linked to 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 pressures of growth um you could you, yeah it's 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 quite you could keep this kind of autonomy and um like tsa forum i suppose you can decide things for yourself i think it's always important to have that sense that you can decide things for yourself and you know financially as well and um so if you don't really want to do something, you, you don't have to do them. To me, this is very exciting and very relevant to an emerging attitude. You feel especially amongst students where there is a explicit desire to do less. And it's often misconstrued as a kind of laziness or disinterest, or in its most extreme, a kind of nihilism. Mm, mm. But that's, in fact, not the case, mm. um, at least with the work we've been discussing today. I mean, first of all, do you sense this in, in younger architects? Uh, and if so, um, how do you start to expose students to the optimism that you feel about practice and about this idea of working and futility? I mean, we, we do talk about doing less a lot with students. Uh, I also learn from them about the need to do less and the, the also excitement of trying to figure out what doing less means. And as you say, I think, you know, I sort of this kind of doing less is okay uh, energy to more recently doing less but with 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 more <laughs> with, with more rigor more rigor more excitement more ex i don't know more possibilities more diversity i don't know but these things could be expressed by doing less um, and this happens a lot even in our current projects where we have to let go a lot and I think that's okay to let go a lot. This, and, and maybe something like the yard has taught, taught, taught me this, but you can't control everything as architects. You can't really be, you know, dictating everything. That's not the point in a way. It's about liberating users and um, 
um, yeah, inhabitants, people, people who go past your projects. I think, I think we, we, we <laughs> this kind of, there's a limit to this controlling nature of, of, of what we've been doing in a way as architects. And I think it's quite exciting to be liberating. It's this, you know, not both and, Venturi both and, but like all and, you know, it's all and more, like let, let, let things be in a way. Uh, I find this particularly in like procurement process, processes, de dealing with clients where budget is an issue or speed is an issue. You just have to let go some things and that's fine. You know, you find ways of frame that to actually get into an exciting result that you, you don't know how it will be in a way. You, you don't have this, you know, it's interesting about imagination that's been kind of running through today, but you don't know what, how it's going to be. You know, it, it could have some chaotic moments. It could have some disturbing moments, but maybe that's fine, you know, and that's, I find that really exciting and, and quite liberating which is something I'm learning also from students and, you know, students are much, much more conscious of climate crisis and the, 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 the place where we're in now. <laughs> and um, um, I, 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 I get that kind of um, pressure, but, but still obviously holding on to enjoyment of architecture and the, uh, expression of architecture and, and, and how do you do this? How, how, how do you make these threads coexist? And I find that the most exciting thing about it, whether it's subjectivity or collectivity, it's, it's about, yeah, uh, looking for architecture. Yeah, where is architecture in, in, in the 21st century, in this kind of day, you know, this, this when we were all debating the climate, diversity, gender, um, etc. And still trying to figure that language out mm. is, is, I find that very exciting. And I think you can probably uh, uh, have space to do that better if you're a smaller practice in a way. I love this question of where is architecture? <laughs> because it suggests that there's there's some kind of odyssey to embark on <laughs> and rediscovering what practice means now. Yes. In the context of a planet yes. that is broken. Oh, very much. I feel that. And of course, there's no answer. No. But it's very clear that you're looking very hard for it. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, Tag, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Scaffold is an Architecture Foundation production. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I make the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes. Thanks to Takira Shimazaki. Thanks as always to Skandalin. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time.